We're going to be uh, in Deuteronomy, but I want to start off first. And so if you'd open your Bibles along with me to 2 Samuel chapter 12 and go to verse 15. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 15. Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity to gather together to worship you and to draw closer to you in ways that maybe we haven't known before. I pray, Father, that we would surrender all of our own self and just live for you, that we would be walking according to the Spirit, not the flesh. And I ask, Father, that you would anoint and use me to minister to these, your people. I'm empty on my own, Lord, so fill me with your knowledge, with your love, and with your Holy Spirit to be able to share your truth. And so, Father, I pray that each heart would be prepared to hear from you this morning. And maybe for some, there's a word of encouragement that they need. Maybe for others, it has to be a a touch of your spirit to bring healing physically, emotionally, or any other way. And for some, maybe for salvation, that they might commit their lives to you today. And so, Father, we ask that you would be among us to minister and to encourage. And I pray and ask this in Jesus' name, amen and amen. You know, it's interesting, when we look at God's Word, and I've shared this with you over and over again, that everything that was written, that was written in the past, was for us, for our understanding, that we might be encouraged. And so it's not just the New Testament, it's not just the epistles, it's the entire Bible is the Word of God. And um, this week I was thinking of so many people I've talked to that have been kind of disappointed and discouraged because of the way our world is going. Our world is insane. I mean, there's no way you can look around us, and I'm not talking about just our own community, I mean the world, and not understand that they are without God. They are without purpose. They're without direction. And I think for you and I, oftentimes, when things don't go the way we think they should go, we become upset, and maybe we just hang on to it and hang on to it. And what it does is it it hinders our ministry. It cripples us from doing the work God has called us to. And that's why we're going to be reading this portion. It might seem, you know, what's he talking about? When I finish reading this portion, I'll explain to you uh, what the Lord showed me through it. 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 12. I mean, I'm sorry, 2 Samuel chapter 12, starting with verse 15. Does everyone have that now that I confused you a few times? 2 Samuel 12, 15. And the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bore to David. You notice he considers Bathsheba Uriah's wife at this point because their relationship, the way they came together, was wrong. The child, and it became ill, and David therefore pleaded with God for the child. And David fasted and went in, and he laid, and he lay all night on the ground. So the elders of his house arose and went to him. Now, these would not be like servants. These are the elders of his house, the house of David. They would be like advisors. They would be like, you know, cabinet members, whatever you want to call them. And um, they went to him to raise him up from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. Then on the seventh day came the pass that the child died. And the servant of, uh, servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, indeed, while uh, he was alive, uh, we spoke to him, and he would not heed our voice. 
How can we tell him that the child is dead? He may do some harm. Probably they meant to himself if he's weeping and crying at this point. Then when David saw that his servants were whispering, David perceived that the child was dead. Therefore David uh, said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. So David arose from the ground, washed and anointed himself, and changed his clothes, and he went into the house of the Lord, and he worshipped. Then he went to his own house, and when he, requ when he requested, they set food before him, and he ate. Then his servants said to him, What is this that you, do, that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and you ate food. And he, David, said, while the child was alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who can tell whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? And then right here, notice this. This is such a, a great testimony. I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. So we have a couple things here that I think can be very encouraging to us, and that is there are things that sometimes we find ourselves praying and weeping over ways we would like to see p things change. Maybe the political you know, uh, team we'd like to have in office and doesn't, you know. We, we can pray because we don't know exactly how the Lord is going to be working in the situation, so we pray, Lord, Lord, you know, we want you to work in this direction or that direction. But then when it's all over with, and everything is settled, and this is the way it's going. We get up, and we wash our face, and we take food, and we follow Jesus. And that's the problem that we have. There are so many people that get discouraged over political situations, over social situations, and, and, and whatever, that they just continue weeping like, like David was and, and, and just crying out. Oh, uh. Well, look, it, it's been settled. You know, put on your big boy pants. <laughs> get up. And do the work of the ministry. That's what we have been called to do. We have not been called to be political anarchists or anything like that. We've been called to be servants of the living God. And so that's the direction we need to go in. But I also love it in the very end here where David is saying, I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. That is David's belief in eternal life and life after death. In other words, I'm going to go to be with my child, but my child has died. He's left this earth. He can't come back, but I can go to him. And for each one of us, we always have to have that certitude and that understanding that this life isn't it. Life is not about this life. It's about the life to come. Because you can do everything you possibly can to try to make life the way you want it to be, to go in the direction you would like it to go, and guess what? It's like trying to, um, you ever have the mercury when you're little, the old mercury thermometers, and you used to break it and take the mercury out of it, and you could play with it and be absorbed through your skin, and it's poisonous. But anyway, uh, you remember you used to have the little mercury thermometers, and, and it was almost impossible to direct. It would go all over the place. You, you'd press on it and, you know, break up. Well, that's the way life is. We, we try to direct our life rather than just living our life. God, I love you. You've given me your Holy Spirit. I know the direction you want me to go. I'm walking in that direction. I don't know exactly how the path is going to go, but I'm going in that direction following you. 
How many of you, and I can say this with absolute certainty, how many times have Vi and I woken up and said, you know what? We've got nothing to do today. Today's going to be just a day of relaxation. And then, boop, boop, boop. Next thing, we're all over the place. And the point I'm getting at, we, we can't plan our life, but the Lord directs our steps. He'll always direct our steps. And so like in this situation with David, if you've had some difficulty you've been praying for, whether it's you know, politics, whether it's a job, whether it's family situations, whatever it is, and you've been praying over it, and the Lord has shown you, okay, this is the way it's going to be. Get up and just follow Jesus. Don't sit around feeling sorry for yourself. Because there is a time for sorrow to pass and to move forward with the Lord. That's what David was demonstrating to us here, to always move forward with the Lord. Now, when bad things happen in our lives, it doesn't mean that God doesn't love us. Did you, you, did you know that? When bad things happen in our life, it doesn't mean God doesn't love us, but that he is working in us for his greater good. Because we have to realize, when I tell you life is not about this life, but the life to come, I'm referring to the fact that we're going to be with the Lord one day. And we desire to do things that will allow him to see us as his great treasure. And so we need to be doing those things that are serving God and, and more to be bringing the glory of God in front of people that don't know. You know, we need to be evangelists but life sometimes has some really bad curveballs. Life has some difficulties. And I think there are too many Christians that when things don't go the way they pray, they think, God's mad at me. I must have done something wrong. i got to figure out what I did wrong. Well, the thing is, you've probably done a lot of things wrong. It doesn't take a lot of figuring. But the reality is, God doesn't allow difficulties to happen in your life because he hates you. He loves you. But there are times difficulties happen, but God can use it to encourage you. Turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 and go to verse 28. And this is a portion that most people know half of one verse of it by heart, but they don't really know the whole portion. Romans chapter 8 and verse 28. Romans 8, 28. And I'm going to start it off by reading verses 28 through 29, and then we'll move down a little bit. Romans 8, verse 28. And we know that all things work for good for those who love the Lord, uh, those who love God, and those who are called according to his purpose. Most of us just know all things work for good. All things work for good. It's all right. All things work for good. Look at what it's telling us. All things work for good for those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. In verse 29, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined, what? To be conformed to his image, the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Now move down to verse 35, and it tells us what this kind of trust in God might involve. 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, we're going to have tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, 
or nakedness, or peril, or sword? What's going to separate us from the love of God? Nothing. If we love Jesus, no matter what happens in our life, we still love Jesus. For whatever reason, this is the turn in the way our life is going, and God means it for his good. I don't know how many times in my life I can look back, and I was like, God, why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? And God didn't. And then it ended up being for my good. It ended up being for my good. So I really, really, really encourage us to remember just exactly what we're reading, reading here. Tribulations, difficulties, distress, persecutions, famines, nakedness, sword. It doesn't mean that that will separate us from the love of God. In fact, it should cause us to draw closer. Verse 37. Yes, in all things... We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Through good times, through bad times, through tragedy, through, through joy, through all things. We're more than conquerors through him who loved us. Verse 38. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life. It's kind of a funny thing. But a lot of people are afraid of, of death when death is really just our entrance into relationship with God. Or life. Some people are, t- are afraid of life nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so we have to understand that as believers, whatever is going on in your life, whatever difficulties you're facing, whatever struggles you have, whatever decisions you need to make, the Lord is in charge. And if you are surrendered and submitted to him, he's going to use it for your good. He really will. Now we're going to be getting into, in our portion in Deuteronomy chapter 16, if you want to turn there. And one of the first things we're going to be looking at in this portion in Deuteronomy 16, starting with verse 13, is what's called the Feast of Tabernacles. And we have to realize that the Feast of Tabernacles was first established uh, in the wilderness. And they built a tabernacle. And the tabernacle was to be what? Where the presence of God could be seen and experienced. And then when they came into the Promised Land, they still used a tabernacle. And eventually they brought it to Jerusalem, and David, we all know, wanted to build a house for God. Why should we be living in cedar houses and God's still in a tent? And so God wouldn't let David do it because he was a man of blood. He had uh, Uriah put to death so he could marry Bathsheba. But he said, he said, your son, Solomon, will be able to build it. But one of the things that we oftentimes miss, if you didn't study that portion carefully... God wasn't that crazy about building, you know, a, um, a, a temple. What did, what did we call it? You have a tabernacle and you have the temple. Yeah. You know, they wanted to build this fancy temple with gold. And so that wasn't God's first plan or idea. He was satisfied with them just having the tabernacle in the wilderness because the whole purpose of the tabernacle was entering into the presence of God. First, you brought your offering to the Lord at the outer gate. That's like when we bring ourselves to salvation. And then the animal, we lay our hands on it, and the priests lay their hands on it, and we pray that our sins would be forgiven over the animal. Then the priest takes the animal and cuts its throat. 
and the animal's blood is shed for the forgiveness of our sin. You see how it points to Jesus? Then after that, the blood is taken and it's put into a, a, a basin, and then the priest, the rest of the carcass is burnt, the priest goes, and there's called, you know, the bronze lever. And the bronze lever is where water was put in that the priest would wash before he entered into the holy place. And the bronze was so perfectly polished that when the priest looked down into it, he can see himself. And so he would wash his hands, recognizing, I need to be made clean, like all of us need to be made clean. Then he would take the blood in, and he would pour it on the horns of uh, the altar uh, before he would go in, and then he would go in to the holy place, where you had on this side the table of showbread, showing us that God is always the bread of life to man. And over here, you had the candelabra, which is, this is representative, the menorah, which was the only light, in the only light in the tent, showing that God is the light of the world. And then you had the altar of incense just before you entered into the Holy of Holies. And it tells us in Scripture that the incense represents the prayers of the saints. And then once you passed the altar of incense and went behind the curtain into the Holy of Holies, you were in the presence of God. And for you and I, we offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. And we kind of lay our hands in our own heart and head, God, forgive me, a sinner. And then he forgives us. Then he takes the blood of the lamb that was slain for each one of us that our sins might be forgiven, and he sprinkles our heart that we might be made clean. Not perfect, but we might be made clean. And then we're washed with the, the water of the word, the brazen lever, which allows us to go into the holy place where we can come into the light and the presence of God. And then we kneel before the altar of incense and just lay our request before the Lord. And the first request we should have is just to worship him and to be close to him. And then he will draw us into his very presence in the holy of holies. So the tabernacle in the wilderness represented how we would eventually, how man would eventually enter into the presence of Christ. And all these holidays that were laid out for the Jews always represented Christ in coming into his presence. And it's such an amazing thing to realize that. This human body is so temporary. You guys know what I mean. You get older, and it's wearing out. Why is this human body wearing out? Because it's human, because it's flesh, and it is wearing out. You know, when you get to be my age, you've got a primary care physician... You have a cardiologist, pulmonologist, a nephrologist, an audiolarnicologist, an ophthalmologist, and I don't even know which appointment, I, and, and a dermatologist. I don't even know which appointment I'm going to first. I know, fill out my calendar. It used to be I'm visiting here, I'm visiting, I'm going to go do this, I'm going to speak here. Now I fill out my calendar, and I have to look at it to see which doctor I'm going to this week. I'm being silly, but the point I'm making, this old body is wearing out. But this body isn't me. Who I am is still 20. You know what I'm saying? Who I am, soul, and spirit. Our soul is our self-identity, is who we are. It's your personality. And that is eternal. 
That cannot die. It's, it's, it, you know what I mean? It's not a physical manifestation. It is our soul. And then our spirit, which is made alive when we came to Jesus Christ, allows who we are as a person, our self-identity, to be in worship and fellowship with the living God. In the same way, it's the whole, it's always entering into the presence of the Lord. And when you're in the presence of the Lord, there's nothing greater. You know, I think it's such a wonderful and beautiful thing that God has given us. And it's called prayer. To be able to take time to set aside all the cares and troubles and anxieties of this world and just go before the Lord in prayer. And I shared this, I think, in Bible study, but I'll share it with you. Uh, it's not my own. It's not original with me, but I heard in a, in a teaching years and years ago that when you want to pray, use as an acronym uh, for prayer Acts. You know, like the book of Acts, Acts of the Apostles. A stands for adoration. First thing we should do is just adore the Lord. And then the C, A-C, is, um, you know, going before the Lord and making confession, being willing to say, Lord, I have problems, forgive me. And then the T is thanksgiving. Thanks, God, you forgave me my sin. You died for me. Thank you for everything you've given me. And the very last thing you pray for in the ACTS is supplication. And that's when we ask God for things we need. Things we, but our approach to God should be how wonderful and gracious and, and marvelous he is. Not, oh, it's time to pray. I want, I want, I want. It should be time to pray, Jesus, you are so worthy. I love you. I praise you. I thank you for all that you've done. I thank you for salvation that you so freely poured out on all mankind. That is prayer. And it's a wonderful thing. So anyway, in Deuteronomy 6, starting with verse 13, you shall observe the Feast of Tabernacles seven days when you have gathered from your threshing floor and from your wine press. In other words, when the harvest is being gathered. And you shall rejoice in your feast, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, and the Levites, the stranger and the fatherless and the widow who are within your gates. You know what this tells us? No one's excluded from God. No one. Anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved from sin and death. Not necessarily saved from things in this life. It might be the Lord's will to do that, but we're saved from sin and death. Because sin is the deadliest plague that any of us has in this human race. Because sin separates us from the love of God. But now, that sin can be forgiven. If we confess our sin, confessing sin, brothers and sisters, isn't just like, Let's see, i got to do all this. Uh, forgive me for doing this and this, and number one and number two, and I'll, I'll just say the numbers, Lord. You know what they are. Forgive me for three and three. That's not what it means. Confession of sin is, I'm guilty. This is what I do. I recognize, you know, the fullness of my sin. Forgive me, Jesus. And if we confess our sin, he cannot help but be faithful. He cannot help but to be just. And he purifies us, washes us clean from all unrighteousness. What a beautiful thing. What a promise the Lord has given us. Verse 15. Seven days, which of course is the number of completion. And um, you shall keep a sacred feast to the Lord your God in the place which the Lord 
chooses because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and in all the work of your hands so that you shall surely rejoice. Three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses. And there are some people who would read that and say, why just the men? I think that's sexist. It's not sexist. It's not sexist at all. It's the command of God. If the Lord wanted to choose the women to be the ones that did that, he would have. But he chose the men. And there are some logical reasons for it. You know, the wife would probably, it would be necessary for her to stay home and take care of the family and the meals and, you know, and things like that. Plus, the Bible makes it clear that God chose man to be the head of the family. Now, when we say the man is the head of the family, it's not like you might see on some TV shows. Listen, God appointed me, boss, and you do what I say. How did the Lord lead us? By example, by love, by faithfulness. And the same thing is true. We men who are married, who have children, we are to lead by example. We are to take the responsibility to make sure the family comes before the Lord in fellowship. There's so many homes where the wife is always saying, well, we should have family devotions. We should have time to pray. Why don't we do that? It should be the husband who doesn't complain about it, but says, hey, let's pray. Hey, let's sit down with the Bible. That's the responsibility of the man. And so this is brought out here that it is the men who are supposed to come as the leaders, as setting the example in worship and, and in fellowship with God. I think it's a beautiful thing. In other words, and then it continues here, he, chose, uh, he chooses. At the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the Feast of Unleavened Bread begins the evening after the Passover, and it lasts for seven days. Now, two days after the Passover is the Feast of First Fruits. And that's important because Jesus was crucified the day before Passover. And so the Feast of Fruits being two days after the Passover, it means Jesus would have been in the grave three days and three nights. And it was at this Feast of Fruits that Jesus rose from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15.20 says, But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And so Jesus is our celebration of first fruits. That's when he rose from the dead. And it's a promise that each one of us will also rise from the dead. He's the first fruit. We're the second fruit. We might be fruity, but we're the second fruit. He rose from the dead, and so will we. It's the promise of God. You know, if, if people could just understand and recognize this isn't just some philosophy, this isn't just some religious you know, hyperboil, this is the, the word of God, and this is truth. This body, this life is so temporary, but who we are is intrinsic. It cannot die. Soul and spirit can't die. So when this body ceases to exist, those of us who are believers will be with the Lord. And isn't that what Scripture tells us? To be absent from the body. In other words, you died, 
but you are absent from the body. In other words, you are still alive. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. What an amazing thing to think about that when a believer closes their eyes in death, they open their eyes instantly in life, new life with Jesus Christ. Now, Pastor Frank was saying at uh, the first service, I don't know if we'll really do this, but he said when he died that instead of people sitting around crying, he wants to have a dirt bike party. He wants people to come with their bikes and we'll have wings and everybody will be celebrating and having a good time. But really, it's a, right, it's a good idea. It's a right idea for him because he'll be with the Lord. I mean, usually the weeping and the sorrow that we have at someone's death, and there's nothing wrong with that, is because we miss them. It's not, it's not because we don't think they want to have We miss them. We don't have their presence any longer. You know what the short, shortest verse in the Bible is? Anyone know? Jesus wept. And that's when his friend Lazarus died. And, he said, and it says Jesus wept. Why did he weep? He knew Lazarus was going to be raised up. He was going to be the one to raise him up from the dead. But he wept in sorrow over his death, that there was that separation between Lazarus and his sisters and his family and so forth. So it's not, there's nothing wrong when someone who you love dies and you weep. But the thing is, <clears throat> you're weeping more for yourself. <clears throat> Excuse me, actually you're weeping completely for yourself. Because that person is with Jesus. I mean, they're experiencing all the glories of heaven. I guarantee you, they're singing hallelujah. They're, they're, they're absolutely blessed. But we're sorrowful. We don't have that person's presence, their fellowship and their company. But then we encourage one another in this. One day, we'll all be with the Lord together. And the Bible says we shall know and be known. What that means, when you get to heaven, you have your soul, your self-identity. You're going to know who you are. You're not going to get to heaven and be like, oh, man, who am I? You're going to know who you are, and you're going to know others as well. You shall know and be known. <clears throat> Beautiful promise of God. And then at the Feast of Weeks, which is also called Shabbat in the Bible, or Pentecost. And the word Pentecost means 50. Pentecost is 50 days after the Feast of Weeks. And we all know that something special happened 50 days after, um, you know, Pentecost, and that was the coming of the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 2, if you want to turn there, when Jesus rose from the dead, which would have been two days after Passover, he roamed this earth, this world, with his disciples. He was seen for 40 days. And then it was time for him to go. And his disciples were upset. You know, we lost you once in death. Now you're going to go again. And that's when he gave them the promise. You know, the Holy Spirit's going to come. And so, if you turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. But now Christ has risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. I'm sorry, I meant Acts 2. See, I'm trying to fool you. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. I'm sorry. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. This is the Feast of Weeks, Shabbat or, Pe or uh, Pentecost. 
When the day of Pentecost, Shabbat, okay, had fully come, they were, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire, and one sat on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. They began speaking in tongues. And by the way, there are two different words for tongues in the Greek, glass and glaciela. One literally means aesthetic utterance. In other words, there's no necessary meaning to it. It's just your heart crying out, in, in, in praise and worship of God. And then the other one is an understandable, not like, for instance, when the disciples were preaching the gospel right after uh, Pentecost, it tells us that everyone heard them in their own language. That's the gift of tongues, which is a known language. But then there is also the aesthetic utterance, which is only used in Scripture for personal praise to the Lord. That's when it's used, personal praise to the Lord. Okay. And then we have the Feast of Tabernacles, which we've been talking about. In the Hebrew, it's Sukkot, and, um, or the Festival of Shelters. And this is celebrated on the 15th day of the seventh month of Tishri. And it varies with us from late September, early October. In the Gospel of John, chapter 1 and verse 14, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt, and dwelt. Skenao is the word there for dwelt. You know what it means? Tabernacle. So if you were really reading it, in fact, the King James Version, I think, puts it this way, And the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. That's what the word means, dwelt. It means tabernacled among us, like the Feast of Tabernacles. And we beheld the glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. It goes on to say in this portion we're covering. Every man shall give as he is able, according to the blessings, uh, of the, according to the blessing of the Lord your God, which He has given him. And so, to me, this is such a beautiful example of God's grace and His mercy. You give what you're able to give. Some people can give more. Some people can give less. It might be of finances. It might be of time. But we give what we're able. But give it freely to the Lord. Never begrudgingly, but in joy to the Lord. Now, this was interesting too. Um, according to Jewish tradition in the Talmud, no marriages or worldly celebrations were allowed to be celebrated during these three feasts. Why? All focus was to be on the Lord and having fellowship with Him, not ourselves. You know, we talk about narcissism or being narcissistic. All of us are, to a certain extent. All of us are. I mean, so often when we perceive things going on around us, things that are going to come about, a lot of times we look at it, how's it going to affect me? How am I going to be benefited or hurt by this? How wonderful it would be to be just completely altruistic and just 
God, I just love you. It doesn't make any difference what happens. You know, I always think of um, Paul. I mean, what an example. He is beaten, shipwrecked, left for dead. I mean, stoned. You think, the Apostle Paul, what a lovely time he had in his evangelistic efforts. What? He's thrown in prison more than once. He received the 40 lashes minus one more than once. He was chained to, to Roman guards who he led to the Lord. He actually had an influence in the palace household with his testimony. But we have to remember that things weren't just hunky-dory for Paul. And so for you and I as believers, it doesn't mean that everything's going to be just great, you know, the prosperity, life prosperity kind of gospel. That's not found in Scripture. The gospel is the gospel. We're the instruments of the gospel. And how might God use us? We don't know. Maybe our witness is greater in adversity than it is when things are going well. And that's why I tell people, you have to be careful when you give this kind of testimony. Well, you know what? Since I accepted Jesus Christ, everything's been great. I've earned more money. I've been healthier. And uh, my relationships are going... Everything's just great since I got saved. Because people start associating salvation with themselves, narcissistically, and what it's going to do and how it's going to benefit them. Our testimony should be, I was a wretched sinner. A wretched sinner. You can't even imagine the things that went through my mind or some of the things that I've done. But I cried out to God. And through Jesus Christ, I was completely, 100% forgiven and totally washed clean. That's why I always finish that verse that you guys know because I say it 400 times a year. If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us. But you have to remember the rest of it and purify us. In other words, wash us of all unrighteousness. So when we ask God's forgiveness for whatever the sin is, he not only forgives us, we're cleaned. We're washed clean. And that's why as believers, sometimes it's hard. But when someone really confesses and asks God's forgiveness, we should also forgive them and remember it no more. Remember it no more. Now, the festivals that God laid out for his people in this was all that they might develop an understanding of personal relationship. You know, the whole intention from creation was that God might have intimate fellowship with his people that he loves so much. Because, listen to this, God is not a vague philosophy or some mystical understanding of his person or idea to believe in or just some inference. He is personal, real, and knowledgeable one we can have fellowship with when we're born again of the Spirit. Then he gives us life and relationship with him. You know, I was sharing during our Bible study Wednesday night, when we pray, sometimes we forget that one of the attributes of God is his omnipresence. Now, what his omnipresence means is that he can be everywhere at once. Well, I can't understand that. I couldn't figure that out. So in order for someone to do that, they'd have to be God. Well, he is. <laughs> he can be everywhere at once. So what that means is when you go into your prayer closet and you bow your head in prayer before the Lord, God isn't 
up in heaven saying, I got to tune, oh, I hear so many people talking, I'm trying to hear everybody at once. No, no, no. God is personally in that prayer closet with you, hearing only you, because he's omnipresent. That's the kind of personal relationship we have with our maker, with our Lord. Now, it also tells us that the reason we don't appear empty-handed is just a showing of our gratitude. What can I give the Lord? Prayer? I can give the Lord my time and energy in helping others? What can I give to the Lord? What did he give to us? He set for us an example that we should follow in his steps. So the things Jesus did, we can give back to him by doing the same things. You know, um, oh, what was Elizabeth Elliot's? Jim Elliot uh, said something like this. His wasn't exactly like this. But uh, Jim Elliot was, um, he was the one that he and, and some of the other missionaries that were with him were captured by the Ak Indians and they were, they were killed. They were put to death. And, um, but this is a statement that Jim Elliott made. Uh, I'm putting it in my own words, okay? We give to God what we can't keep or take with us, right? And he gives to us what we can't lose and will be with us for eternity. Our reward is eternal. The treasures we store up in heaven are eternal. Now I'm gonna, going to finish up quickly here with verses 18 through 22. You shall appoint judges and officers in your gates, which the Lord your God gives you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with just judgment. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality, nor take a bribe. For a bribe binds the eyes of the, blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the righteous. For you shall follow what is altogether just, that you may live and inherit the land which the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not plant for yourself any tree as a wooden image near the altar which you build for yourself to the Lord your God, and you shall not set up a sacred pillar which the Lord your God hates. So we have to understand that we no longer have judges and priests like are mentioned in here. We no longer have that. We have the Word of God and we have the Holy Spirit. And many people misunderstand a pastor is called. He, he has given some to be pastors and teachers. A pastor is a teacher. He is called of God. But I'm not your God and I am not the one who runs your life. My responsibility as the pastor is to feed you is to give you the word of God, to give you the truth. But it's your responsibility to be willing to allow the Holy Spirit to apply it to your life. We're so often willing to allow the Holy Spirit to apply the word of God to our life, except where it's uncomfortable. Except where I personally have a problem with it. I mean, sometimes when I'm talking to people and they'll say, you know, I personally have a problem with this portion of scripture. I want to punch him, not really. But I'm, I'm thinking to myself, what do you mean? You have a problem with it. You're mortal. This is the word of God. You don't have a problem with it. You believe it, and you accept it, and you apply it to your lives. That's what we need to do. He's given us his word. I love it. In Hebrews chapter 4, and verses 12 through 13, if you're taking notes, it says, For the word of God is living 
It's the Word of God, powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. How many times do you thought, well, I think this would be a good idea. Then the Holy Spirit comes in and says, you think it's a good idea because it's going to benefit you. No, it's not a good idea. I don't want you to do it that way. So we have to allow him to be a discerner of the thoughts and intents of our heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him whom we must give account. And he's also given us his Holy Spirit. And his Holy Spirit not only fills our hearts and gives us the assurance of salvation, not only the seal of our, you know, and deposit of our eternal life that's to come, but also the Holy Spirit is able to give us the ability that we need to walk through this perverse and, and crazy life. This life is like a huge maze. And you can't find your way through it, but the Lord can guide you through it if you just allow him to lead you. And then the Lord admonishes all believers, not just them, um, to not pervert justice or show partiality or take a bribe. We just read that. And let me share with you why. See, you can't, you can't, it's so important not to twist justice by showing any kind of partiality. And uh, you have to realize, too, that a bribe can be more than money. Did you know that? For instance, let me share this with you. Acceptance, popularity, making someone happy, get what you want. Um, all these can constitute a bribe. Not necessarily money. Well, if you do this, I'll like you. If you do that, I'll love you. If you do this, I'll be happy. If you do that, I, I'll be angry. You know, those are all bribes. You and I, in our walk with the Lord, should never go by our emotions or by the threats of other people or even by the encouragement of other people, the promises of other people. We walk our life according to the word of God. Doesn't mean that we don't try to be amicable with one another. We should be. We should as much as possible, as much as within you lieth, live at peace with all men. But it says, and be holy, for without holiness no one will see the Lord. So important for us to understand that. And then you have this whole thing of planting trees near the sacred place of God. And some people could say, well, what's the problem with planting a tree or... or well, what it was is they would plant trees, groves, near the places that they were supposed to be worshiping the Lord. Then they would peel the bark off the tree and carve images in it. It came from paganism, from Babylon. And so what it was is you were trying to mix true worship of God with paganism. And we have to be careful of, of that as well. You know, there's so many things that have gone through the church, and if people knew the word of God, they would never have been pulled astray by it. Have you ever heard of a prayer labyrinth? Labyrinth? Oh, that was real popular for a while. These churches would put up these big, you know, labyrinths, the, you know, kind of, uh, what do they call the things you go all through? Maze. They put it up like these mazes, only they, there was direction you could go right through it. And they would have different pictures and sayings. And so you're supposed to go through this, and each picture you come to, and, and according to what you're looking at or reading, you pray, and, this and, that, and then you go to the next one and pray. It's like prayer stations. It's pagan. It came from pagan practices. And it's amazing how many things like that can find their way into the church. Worshiping the Lord is simple. 
It's pure. It's holy. And it's easy if we stand on the Word of God. It's not a matter of trying to figure it out or a, a matter of what's going to work best. It's a matter of just humbling yourself before the Lord, loving Him with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and worshiping Him. And then He, He, capital H, E, Yahweh, is able to not only lead and guide your life, but give you all things that you need, because only He knows. And so when we read the Old Testament, it becomes obvious that it might be what we call the Old Testament but boy, it sure has New Testament applications, doesn't it? Let's pray. Father, we come before you in Jesus' name, and we're so thankful for your love and the way that you just so generously give to us in so many ways, and you've given us your word in abundance that we might have the knowledge of how to walk and follow hard after you. And so, Father, I pray that the things that have been shared this morning would be received by these, your precious people, and it would help them to have a closer walk with you and to be your witness and shine the light in this very dark world. And I pray this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen and amen. And God bless you, my dear friends, and you are my dear friends. And you out there, too.